The, the question that I came away with from these three is who do I trust then? You know, if I feel disillusioned uh, over the way that leadership, political or, or um, scientific has treated me, who do I trust? And at the end of the day, yeah, the, the, the skepticism or, or the critical thinking that you're discussing, Jordan, I, I don't have to bring that in the same way to my relationship with Christ now. I've spent the time and the years that it takes for me to come to the place where I trust the revelation of God through scripture. No, but I can also just rest and trust that he is ultimately an authority that I can follow. Welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where two friends and C.S. Lewis fans explore his lesser known works. Join us this season as we are exploring essays from Lewis that we think speak to our world today. Hey again, Jordan. Hey, Sean. Why'd you say again? Ah, uh, well, because we have met before. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Good point. I suppose every time we greet people that we've met before, we should say again, shouldn't we? You know what? I'm going to start doing that from now on. It's going to be my thing. It's going to be kind of on my brand. I like it. I don't think people will, though. I think it'll be like, why does he do that? (laughs) Yeah. That's obnoxious. Uh, But I also say again, uh, because we are meeting again to discuss uh, C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And we're hitting an all-time high where we are covering three essays in one conversation. How do you feel about that? I feel like it's a lot considering we usually record one essay and run out of time to discuss it. So it's pretty ambitious of us to do three in one episode. Yeah, I would agree. Um, Today we're covering uh, a dream, which is, uh, well, I guess all these three are going to just be short essays, and actually they're all published in 1944, kind of close to one another. And I would guess, I'm just going to, I'm going to give a little teaser here to say that this is, this, uh, the, the end of the war is in sight for Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I think some of the exhaustion of war is is coming in, and they're just in that that um, season. And I think that's going to add some color to our conversation. Sorry, so we got a dream, uh, and then blimpophobia, which what a great title that is! It's awesome. <laughs> and uh, and then one entitled Private Bates. So I would just uh, give this quick um, note to our readers that typically uh, these essays are very easy to find online or in in printed printed collections and that kind of thing and, and often on audio versions. And uh, these ones, a couple of them were a little trickier for me. They are still out there, uh, but I would just, uh, I would just say that if you're, I'll put links in the show notes for oh, them. Okay. You're going to, oh, if you're, that. yeah, if you're looking for them, look in our show notes and you should be able to find a link to all of these ones. Beautiful. Well, and, and so Jordan, I know that we're going to, we're revisiting a topic that we discussed in the last couple of weeks. Um, which was uh, just in, in regards to the, we find ourselves in a season that's quite similar to Britain 1944 in that the, the wartime measures that they were in, in the 40s, it seemed like, oh, there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, they've been under the specter of war for several years, quite a bit longer than we've been under the specter of sickness uh, with COVID. Uh, but now, as we record this, restrictions are shrinking they've shrunk significantly um they're not a major part of of my life anymore here and restrictions are are diminishing 
uh, rapidly. You know, there's a few places where we need to be still quite cautious in, in the way that we interact with each other. But numbers globally of COVID infections and COVID serious COVID infections are are going down. And uh, so we celebrate that. But again, now we've lived under some restrictions for a few years, and we need to think about coming out from underneath them. And and I feel like that's the thread that, that binds these three essays together. Yeah, it definitely is. It's like these were kind of written on the tail end there. Uh, the first one probably written, you know, just weeks after D-Day happened. And Lewis definitely has on his mind the post-war situation, which is, uh, for Lewis, this isn't the first time he's come out of a world war. Right. He, he was, um, he saw action in world war one and was actually wounded. Uh, and then in world war two, he was a bit older and, uh, was a, a, uh, Oxford Don or Cambridge. I can't remember where he was at this time. One of those, but he was a part of the home guard, which he kind of talks about in these essays, so he's got some personal experience with the war and what it's like to come out of a war and how you can do that well. Uh, I mean, for us, the reason that's interested, like interesting, like you said, is we're coming out of a world crisis um, in similar ways like a war. And that world crisis has required um, emergency measures and loss of freedom in, in our nations Um and it's created a lot of reaction yeah. to those measures and those losses of freedom. Um, and so Lewis has a lot to say about those things, which is why I thought these would be good ones to tackle while we're doing a, a season on timely things, which, yeah. So these ones I think are timely, but I mean, hey, this is the lesser known Lewis podcast. And these are probably the... I would bet the least known Lewis articles, like I had <laughs> never, never heard of them uh, before I came across a list of his complete writings. So yet nevertheless, I think they're very timely for today and um, I look forward to getting into them. Yeah, agreed. Um, and just to, to, I don't think we're going to give as full a treatment to each one as we normally do just for the sake of time, but also because of, yeah. of how, how short they really are. Like they do fit together. Uh, the three together are roughly equivalent to, to one of the longer um, essays that we covered already on this, on this podcast. But um, yeah, a dream uh, introduces a situation um, of, of coming out of these, these measures and then blimpophobia uh, will, will unpack this a bit, but it's in reference to, um, and a, a popular cartoon character in the UK and in the uh, uh, 30s and 40s. So everyone's everyone's up to date on on that pop culture reference, I'm sure. But we're, we'll we'll get that a little bit. But um, but just talks about why it would be a problem if government and and military officials maintained their grip on power beyond when there was a strict need for it, and what the results of that could be. So again, obviously something that's very relevant to our time here. And then finally, Private Bates is is just more so about propaganda and and how and, and not just not just propaganda, but information, I suppose, in general, and, and mm-hmm. how people can grow cynical about what authorities are saying to them, who is cynical, and what, what we should do with that cynicism. So uh, we're hoping in the course of our conversation to hit all those those um, themes. Uh, let's start with let's start with the dream. Sure. Uh, tell us about a dream. Yeah. So the 
historical situation here is um, the leaders of the UK were, in Lewis's view at least, extending and possibly abusing their power by extending the emergency measures uh, after the need for them. Uh, so the war was, the end of the war at least was in sight, and um, there was talk that conscription would continue even after the war and possibly other restrictions of freedoms. But what Lewis saw was ridiculous was that the conscription, I think it was particularly conscription to the Home Guard, which at this point, the idea of the Home Guard was that in case Germans were coming and parachuting into England, they needed people uh, basically kind of like an army reserves idea on the ground in England to deal, to watch out for and deal with Germans if they were parachuting um, into England. But what it ended up being was a little unnecessary. Maybe the idea was necessary, but it, it Lewis just saw them doing these goofy parades and um, apparently they would show up with like golf clubs and sticks. Sometimes they didn't even have proper weapons. <laughs> And it was basically like this volunteer service. Well, not volunteer because it was conscripted, conscripted but uh, all the men of non, a certain age. Yeah, non-professional at least. Yeah, non-professional. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and they end up spending most of their time doing ceremonial parades and drills. And apparently towards the end of this, like in 1944 when he's writing, some people were more afraid of... Uh, the home guard because they got a little power hungry and would stop and harass <laughs> normal citizens. Um, people said they were more afraid of the home guard than they were of the possible Germans parachuting in. Right. So that's the historical situation that um, Lewis is writing specifically this essay uh, or article, a dream. And then the next one, blimpophobia to, um, to confront. And so he, he, he kind of, in a, a typical Lewis fashion, finds a great way of telling a story to illustrate the problem he sees. Uh -huh. um, Sean, do you want to tell us about what the story is? Yeah, one. Well, and, and as I get into it, I would ask you this question. Do you think that this is actually a dream that he had? Or do you think that it's, it's um, more of a, like, is it a parable? Because he, he frames it in the essay like he actually had this dream. And if he did, then I just got to say, no wonder if his subconscious is working that powerfully while he's asleep. Um, but anyway, I, yeah, I don't know. Do you have an opinion on that? I should, I want to see if this has ever been talked about anywhere else. Well, I a hundred percent think it's way too on the nose to be a dream. Yeah. <laughs> but also, also just seeing how Lewis always turns his thoughts into fiction in order to communicate them. Mm. Um, I just think this has got to be, a complete fictional dream. Um, there's actually a funny story about um, the editor to the Lewis estate after Lewis died. His name is Walter Hooper. Apparently he was reading some, I don't know if it was, it wasn't screw tape or something like that. Some little piece of fiction. Oh, I think it was letters to Malcolm um, that Lewis wrote these fictional letters um, about prayer to this fictional person named Malcolm, just as like a, a device to write about prayer. He's pretending he's writing letters. And Walter Hooper said to Lewis, you know, is this, were these letters you wrote to someone or like, who is Malcolm supposed to be? And Lewis said, Oh, Walter, not you too. 
because <laughs> apparently everyone took people thought that his screw tape letters, which are are written in the perspective of a demon, were letters that he somehow got the, a hold of from actual demons. Yeah, because he's just so good at turning his stuff into fiction awesome. that awesome. people bought it all the time. So was it a dream, Sean? I would say. Oh no, not you too. <laughs> so I was, I was just, I was hoping that that hammer would drop on me. <laughs> anyway, sorry, John. What was the? I thought it was just too perfect to. No, I, I totally agree. I was like, man, if, if your mind actually works this way, then this is incredible. But anyway, so Lewis frames it this way. He says, "I had a dream," and and when he has this dream, this quote unquote dream, after he's had a few conversations with good friends who are engaged in meaningful careers and they're contributing to society, but they're also conscripted into some of these extra wartime, uh, wartime responsibilities, uh, which could be important. Like we said, you know, if people are parachuting into your country, you want to have a group of, of locals who are going to deal with that. But, uh, but he, you know, he's basically being rebuffed whenever he tries to make plans with people because they're so completely absorbed and redirected mm-hmm. by the war effort. And so he goes to sleep and he has this dream and in the dream he sees um, a ship and he says, you know, this ship represents the state right now. This is Great Britain. And uh, and there's a storm that arises and he says, everybody needs to get to the pumps right now. Um, you know, we could be we could be taking on water shortly. So, of course, um, in that situation, everyone on board goes like, oh, we need to we need to do this. You know, so again, I in my own mind's eye, he doesn't clarify this, but I imagine more of a cruise ship kind of scenario than a bunch of people on a Navy ship. Why? Mm. Because it's outside of their usual responsibilities to man the pumps and, and to be responsible for these kinds of things. Um, there's an extra layer of complication here, though, in that um, the officers don't seem to be the most respectable people. Um, they're kind of, you know, you get the impression that they're a bit of a joke. Uh, they're jokes. But in an emergency situation like that, the people on board can't complain. They all need, they know that they need to work together to survive. So, um, they, they man the pumps and, and uh, whatever else needs to be done to, to weather the storm. And then they do. And then the weather gets better and the storm is over. The storm passes. But then um, the officers insist that the workers don't disband immediately um, and, that, and, and in, insist that everybody needs to be prepared for whatever is going to come next. And so um, the, the problem is, though, is that the people in the dream are upset because not only are they not drilling for if there's a fire on board or if they're, if they take on more water or if the engines die or anything like that, that they're being called to do useless, meaningless things. And so they're, they're parading on the ship and, and they're learning uh, skills that actually have nothing to do with keeping the ship afloat or, or saving any lives. So when that happens, uh, essentially, you know, Lewis just says, how are the people on the boat going to respond to the officers? Um, how are they going to respond to an emergency if it comes up in the future? How are they going to respond to their duty um, as it is presented by the officers? And this is the parable that uh, that he frames as a dream. Yeah, that's a good word for it, parable. Um, at the end of this this parable, uh, the the guys on the boat, on the ship, they hear one of the officers say to another officer, well, of course we shall keep all these compulsory squads for the next voyage but they won't necessarily have anything to do with working the pumps. We know that there will never be another storm. Mm. But now, Sean, why would uh, 
these officers on the ship want to extend their power longer and just keep the people busy with, you know, useless things. Well, and I would call back to discussions we've had in membership and, and inequality where uh, Lewis just, he says, like, the reason that he's a Democrat, a.k.a. somebody who believes in democracy, is is because of the fallenness of people. And so I, I would say that as I read this essay, I just look at this this misplaced desire for people to maintain their power over others. Um, you know, the concerns of the officers— are typically not the concerns, or or in the case of World War II, the concerns of the military are not con- typically the concerns of the entire nation at all times. I would even I would use another analogy and say that for paid clergy, somebody who's in uh, quote vocational ministry, the concerns of of the church um, are they absorb us uh, at all times in a way that somebody even a highly committed Jesus loving. Um, layperson doesn't have typically that same level of focus. And so I, I just see like these officers, um, sadly, the ones who are a joke saying like, how can we um, hold on to these people so that uh, they, um, they will serve our ends uh, under our authority rather than going their, their separate ways? Yeah, I guess once, the, once they have a, a bit of power the question is how do we just keep holding it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now the real i guess the real thing that then leads us into the next essay is how do the people at the end of his dream how do the people respond to the officers yeah so again every time that i've i've listened to because i i listened to this one a couple of times every time i Mm -hmm. listen to the dream my my thoughts about the officers have changed a little bit and and the relationship of people to the officers a couple of things that stand out i I guess first of all i should just say that the straightforward thing is that people want to know that if they're going to lose their freedom they're giving it up for a particular reason yeah and and lewis says quote it was only for security that we surrendered our freedom at all end quote so there there is a transactional process to get called into an emergency situation Mm -hmm. um you know, you're getting interrupted. You are giving up your priorities for somebody else's priorities, or you're giving up your rights and freedoms for the sake of, you know, your community or your country. Um, but sadly, this is interesting. I, th- I always think it when the officer says, we know there will never be another storm. Mm-hmm. And so they, they decide that on the future voyages where they're continuing to abuse their power and have these compulsory squads, that they're not even going to teach people how to work the pumps. Right. Uh, and I just wanted to observe there that that there there very well could be another storm, mm-hmm. and yet they they neglect their responsibility to the people on their ships to to give them something meaningful to do in the case of an emergency, and they neglect to give the people on their ships the freedom from having to learn those things, um, or, or having to learn meaningless things, so that they can just enjoy the the journey. So, so yeah, basically uh, the people are upset with the officers and I would say rightly so. Can you contextualize that for us today? Like, I mean, <laughs> we're, we're not, we're not talking about coming out of a war right now. We're talking about coming out of a, a pandemic. I mean, there could be another pandemic at some point, right? Yeah. Or, or and even I, I would make it even smaller than that is just thinking, and I, I was shaking my head about it because I just happened to see on my 
on my newsfeed this stuff about monkeypox. Right. <laughs> and just thinking, are we going to be, are we going to treat the flu that goes through every year like a, um, you know, like we tra- treated COVID? Are we going to yeah. treat, you know, the new strains of everything that comes through? And I know that before COVID, you know, we, we kept kind of a, um, a wary eye on Ebola. And I, mm-hmm. but I, but I also think about how, um, you know, the AIDS crisis was so easy to, uh, neglect for so many years because it was, it was, um, uh, kind of locked into certain demographics and it didn't really affect hmm. uh, most, I would say middle-class people in a direct kind of way until it really got in people's faces in the late eighties, um, with the death and, and the infection of some really, um, significant celebrities is what it took, unfortunately right. yeah. for, for people to care. But yeah, I would say, obviously this, this, uh, aligns completely with COVID and, and now where we say, all right, uh, we, we missed weddings and we missed funerals and we, we isolated ourselves at some cases at great cost to our mental health. Um, we, we restricted worship gatherings and conferences. I know for the college, um, before Essen College, you know, as a, as a Bible college, our, our enrollment cut in half because we were unable to wow. do any of the recruitment that we would normally do or host any of the events that we would normally host. But, and, and, we, and then we mask up in, in public and, and uh, you know, we give up all kinds of things through the, the last two years. People have given up jobs, you know, the pressure of, of um, different family obligations, all these kinds of things. And at the end of the day, we say, well, we hope we did it because we protected some of the um, immune-compromised that mm-hmm. would be the most affected by this pandemic. Mm-hmm. That would be the most impacted by COVID. And now at the end, we're starting to see that, you know, some of those things really helped. Mask wearing in public, um, even just a cloth mask, which, you know, kind of got a bad rap at the very end, mm-hmm. still um, decreased the spread of the disease. Most studies would say between 50 and 65%. Wow. Um, and then depending on what kind of mask you were wearing, those numbers go way up. Okay, great. So that was probably a helpful thing to do. But then uh, I, I saw, uh, you know, a, a study by John Hopkins University recently that said that the, the lockdowns where, where people were told to completely isolate mm-hmm. probably only stopped the spread 0.2% is what, they, is what they figure. So then you go like, oh, man, uh, shoot. <laughs> like, yeah. was, that, was that really meaningful? And then so that's retrospect. But then as we look forward, we go, okay, so COVID is essentially kind of it's decreasing globally mm-hmm. and it's far less severe when people get it than it used to be two years ago. So are, how are we going to listen to the, the voices of some in power who are saying, but we want to keep the restrictions going? Do you want to jump onto that? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> why, why, don't we, why don't we go to uh, the next essay, Blimpophobia? Just because I think it will illustrate more of, uh, it'll take us further into this point of how it, um, how this stuff lands with us post COVID. Yeah, we're not beating around the bush. This really is just about the end of COVID measures. Although I, I would assume, you know, it's very possible with what's going on in Ukraine that we will be looking at conflict measures in the next True. couple of years too. But who's to say? So I think 
people can already see that this is actually, if you've listened to our episode on meditation on the third commandment, we kind of went on some rants that uh, we talked about the Canadian trucker convoy and this kind of thing um, that maybe you'd peg us as totally for all restrictions and all of the things that the government did and we were totally okay with it. Um, I think maybe hopefully you'll see in through this essay, these essays that were maybe a little bit more measured than that. It wasn't, it wasn't that we were for the things the truckers were protesting against. Uh, it was more the nature of how they protested. And in that essay on meditation, I think we were, Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you and I were more concerned on how people's political and Christian views got so overlapped and intertwined that they started uh, putting the name of Christ on things that weren't specifically Christian. Yeah, I think we want to make sure that that's what people know we were uh, more upset and ranty about than (laughs) the the restrictions. Yeah, absolutely. I I would agree with that. Just to say that uh, we even, I mean, I I personally am am fine uh, with the idea that we would have protests of this nature in our country and that people would express themselves that way. But we said, hey, there's there's a better way to express yourself. Do that first. And if you still feel the need to protest, then protest, fine. Mm-hmm. But then when you protest, don't say that this protest is um, the revival that we've been waiting for because we're waiting for something better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so these essays do show a side of Lewis that is, I guess, more libertarian and promoting, he, he really does believe in personal freedom and political freedom. So I don't know, maybe Lewis might have been um, somewhat of a fan of the idea of protesting against some of these restrictions. However, yeah, back to meditation on the third commandment. Yeah, we, we were concerned that there was people um, talking about political and personal freedoms and defending them, defending them as Christians, talking about them as Christian freedoms, um, when Christian freedom, freedom in Christ, is first and foremost a spiritual freedom uh, from sin and to love God and to love others. And maybe one of the ways you could love others is through participating in some of these restrictions um, when the time is necessary. So the second essay here, Blimpophobia, uh, same historical situation. He's, he's still concerned that leaders are extending or abusing their power by extending these like emergency measures and specifically with conscription in mind. Um, that he's concerned that conscription will keep going on even after the war. And he points out that after World War I, there were a lot of soldiers who came away from that hating the army and the leadership and the government so much that it led a lot of people towards pacifism. Mm -hmm. And then because the country became pacifist after World War I, maybe not completely, but like a lot of people were so fed up with that and what happened in World War One, that it, he says it easily opened the door to World War Two happening, because they kind of let Hitler do too much for too long. Anyway, so Lewis's problem here, he sees it as as leaders taking, extending their power too long, or going too far with their power, and he sees that as dangerous because 
he's afraid then it's going to produce resentment in the masses against the possible valid need for emergency measures in the future. If another war comes up or in our case, if an, you know, a war may be on the doorstep with what's going on in Ukraine, or there could be another legitimate pandemic in the future, or Sean, um, we're going to get into this in a couple <laughs> at the end of this season. What if aliens show up? <laughs> what will people do? I, I'm just going to, th- yeah, forget I said that for now, but it's coming up in a couple episodes. So um, let me read this quote from Blimpophobia. He says, if leaders uh, do this and they abuse their power, they extend it too long or too far. He says that, they will make the very name of compulsion not only so hateful, but so contemptible that our readiness to pay for real goods will disappear. And in his case, he, he says this, a permanent or even prolonged home guard, or for us, like restrictions, will drive us into a frenzied anti-officialdom, and that frenzy into total disarmament, and that disarmament into the third war. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sean, do you see... Do you want to continue on how this uh, translates into our day? I like that you're just tossing me those softballs there, Jordan. That's fantastic. <laughs> but but yeah, and and I would say that this uh, this is really true in our day as well. That as people as restrictions eased, and we did go through a wave of a lot more people say getting COVID and and being sick. And you know there were times, uh, at least you know we're talking to our context specifically in Saskatchewan that that many of our ICUs were full of people. And, and, you know, I had a, I had a few close friends who have, who have ended up in ICU. Um, I thought we would lose one or two of them and, and, uh, thankfully didn't. And even just recently, I should say, I suppose, uh, somebody I know who's, who's suffering from paralysis from the waist down, um, after getting COVID, all of these things, uh, we say like, if, if we're really helping people, then we are willing to make sacrifices. Mm-hmm. But after that wave of sicknesses was kind of over and, you know, people were uh, were um, not uh, restricted to social bubbles and, and the social distancing was different and gatherings could be large again. And and there wasn't just all out anarchy. And, and people said, oh, man, you know, the death toll isn't mounting up. Then I think they went and they said, so then it would be meaningless for us to lock down again. That meaning would have been taken away from us. It would be silly. And, and then I think that Lewis is right to say then that if, if our prolonged or our permanent home guard, or um, in, in other words, uh, just health restrictions, will drive people into an, a frenzied anti-officialdom, I think that that's really true. I think we're already seeing that so much to the point that uh, many leaders, many political and, and uh, public health leaders in Canada, I think if, if they were to come out with a very legitimate and um, uh, well-reasoned new health restriction that people would reject it out of hand. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the danger that he's illustrating here where, where he says, um, you know, he talks about disarmament and disarmament leading to war. And I would say maybe a, a total distrust for um, scientific and, and medical institutions would lead people into making really bad medical decisions. Um, you know, would there be a resurgence of polio or, or different kinds of, of diseases that have been eradicated in North America from, from vaccines because of 
um, the feeling like one particular vaccine, i.e. the COVID-19 vaccine, was was um, so urged on the populace. Mm-hmm. I think that would be the, the uh, parallel that we would see in our own day. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it, that kind of, that danger seems very apparent, the danger that Lewis is afraid of here. And it makes me wish leaders, uh, governmental leaders in our country, political leaders would read these essays by Lewis and go, I got to be very careful how I enforce or, or push or legislate or enact restrictions of freedoms. Like it's not just what restrictions we do, but it's the way that they are enforced or rolled out or talked about. What we've experienced the last two years is that the restrictions they turn it into a polarized war that you have to be on one side or the other. You got to be all restrictions or no restrictions. And if you have a question about a few restrictions, uh, like to be honest, I had some concerns personally about the, about vaccine passports, like that idea. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like for me, I went, I think that's where I draw the line, but I wasn't sure how to draw the line. Like what, Right. Uh, you know, what do I do about that? Um, and I didn't know how to talk about it because I was afraid I'd be lumped in with people going no restrictions. Right. And I'm like, well, I don't think, I don't think it's either extreme. There's got to be somewhere in the middle. Um, but because the way things were encouraged by the government or, and, and by the media, and by people who were pro restrictions, it became like, well, it's all or nothing. Like either you're with us on everything or you're not, or you're, or you want to kill people or you want just, you want people to die. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, and it was literally framed that way for some people. Yeah. And so I feel like with these is, I just hear this warning of if you have a role in restricting freedoms, or if you're someone who sees the legitimate reasons why restrictions on our freedoms need to happen, just recognize that how you go about promoting that is important because the way you do it might just have the opposite effect that you want. You might just push people away the yes. way you're doing it and get people to, yes. to be so fed up with restrictions that you then push people into saying, we're never doing any sort of restrictions again. I hate the government. You just add so many more reasons why people hate government institutions and set us up for the next time a pandemic comes through or just a smaller thing, people are going to take, they're just going to, they're not going to want to do any restrictions. And then the consequences of that could be even worse than what they were for COVID. That's right. Yeah. And and I think that that's, you know, and even if we don't see it in our lifetime per se, or even if it's not public health related, that the, the problem is that a worldview is being built that says um, the government is just, um, you know, a patriarchal um, power hungry group of people who don't actually care about anyone they're leading. And you know what? I'm sure there are politicians that are that bad. Sure. I think most most of what we see is incompetence. Yeah. 
um, or 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 just human error more so than um, you know actual malicious intent for a lot of the bad decisions that are made by our leaders. Mm-hmm. And then the other, the, so but it's not just political authorities like we already said, medical and scientific ones, where you go like, um, you know, what what if a treatment is made available to you in the near future, but because you you've so learned to distrust, yeah, yeah. Um, medical science science that you you refuse the treatment for yourself or a loved one. Uh, I recall a story a, a number of years ago. Um, I had some I have some Jehovah's Witness relatives. And I remember in the States, a Jehovah's Witness family refusing a blood transfusion and that because that's a big, uh, big issue for them to to a child that was in a car accident and the child dying because of it. And that that's a little bit different. But the 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 outcome, the scenario Hmm. could play out um, because of our mistrust of of authority, too. And, And the nuance here is that Lewis's solution isn't just trust the authorities. No. What he's saying is the the authorities are legitimately are, are, are asking you to do illegitimate things is what I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, once the emergency is genuinely over, mm-hmm. and so we need to become aware of what's going on in our own hearts, so that we don't just fall victim to throwing up our hands at the end of the day. Yeah, and we need to also um, work within our, our democratic rights to change things um, in the direction that we think that they need to be changed. And I think that leads us actually perfectly into the last essay for this episode, which is Private Bates. Yeah, and Jordan, I, I want to say that Private Bates felt like um, one of the less accessible stories that Lewis told. Like he, um, the last couple of paragraphs have some some real meat in them. I, I think it is best actually to read it in context of these other stories. Mm-hmm. I think that's or these other essays rather. I think that's quite helpful. But um, yeah, why don't you take us through Private Bates? Yeah, like you're right. The first little bit, I was like, I don't think this has anything to do with, like when I was listening to it, I thought, I don't think Sean and I will ever cover this one. And then the last couple of paragraphs, when his point becomes a little more clear, I went, oh no, I think we got to do this one now. <laughs> and I think uh-huh. it goes with a dream and blimpophobia. Um, cause so the beginning is again, he, he's trying to make use of fiction to get his point across. So he borrows a character or a couple of characters from Shakespeare's play, Henry V and uses them as an example of what he sees going on, uh, at the present, well, his present in late 1944. And so he was actually re- writing as a response to a, an article that a, an anonymous soldier wrote earlier. And the soldier said that most soldiers at that time were fighting for the future of the world. They're giving their lives for the future of the world. And yet they were so disillusioned by the war and by what the government was asking them to do and by what the newspapers were saying wrongly about the war. They were so disillusioned that they didn't even really believe in the future of the world for which they were giving their lives. So to try and summarize what Lewis is saying in Private Bates, uh, the character of Private Bates in 
Henry V, I guess, he basically, he represents the World War II soldier. And he kind of just says, look, there's no way to know whether this war is really worth it or not. The king and the heralds, or in in Lewis's day, the king and the government and the newspapers are telling us that we're really fighting for civilization against barbarianism. And we're making the world safe for democracy, but there's really no way to know whether this is true or not. It could just all be propaganda. And given their experience of of the war and of what the newspapers were saying and what the government was saying, they started going, a lot of this seems just like propaganda. But whether that's true or not is none of our business. Our business is basically just to obey. And if it's wrong, it's on the king's head. And so I guess Lewis says this can this apparently concerns a lot of the more educated elite people, the higher classes of society that all these middle to lower classes like the majority of the country are so skeptical and cynical of government and media. And Lewis isn't so concerned that these people are skeptical. What he's concerned about is that they believe they're being lied to by their government and the media. And they're not even really upset about it anymore. Yeah. They just accept that's what it is. And I would say that our, so to just kind of jump in that point, the problem that we have today is that people care that they're being lied to. Yeah. But rather than apathy, I would say that we, we, we have instead tribalism. Yep. So we say, I don't trust what Fox News is saying. I only listen to CNN. Yeah. I don't trust what CBC is saying, so I only listen to CTV. Mm-hmm. And and there's there is in you know rather than saying, hey, shouldn't we actually hold major journalism, uh, you know, and, and journalists rather, and, and major news outlets to a level of of journalistic integrity, mm-hmm. um, rather than just saying I don't care what happens in that paper, that paper is garbage. Yeah, and then just ignoring it. I, I feel like that's our modern response because there is a high level of indignation that C.S. Lewis is saying wasn't present in his time, Mm -hmm. but our response is still not to correct the root problem. Yeah. And I feel challenged by that because I'm so fed up with, I see myself in private baits going, well, of course they're lying to us. Right. You know, this whole pandemic, everyone on the left side of things has been like, I can't believe what Fox News and Trump are saying, like they are just so full of it. They're just putting out propaganda. And I go, yeah, of course they are. And then everyone on the right is like, would you believe what CNN is saying? And can you believe what Biden is trying to do? I'm like, well, yeah, of course they are. Yeah. And I, sorry, I'm using American references because it seems to illustrate the two polar ends easier. And I don't know, maybe we'll have more American listeners, who knows. But I'm the guy who goes, well, yeah, of course they're, it's, they're all full of it. They're just trying to give you the, the silver lining to their version of things and to downplay the values of the other things. Of course they are. And I just throw my hands up and go, I just don't really listen or pay too much attention to any of it. Yeah. Which I, I mean, I don't know what to do, but I'm listening to Lewis here. I go, that's probably not the right response. Right. I should be more upset about this. But maybe the right response isn't being fed up with the left and going to the right 
news source. Yes. <laughs> or being fed up with the right news source and going, the right's all propaganda. This one, the, the left isn't. Well, I don't know. Like, look, maybe recognize there's, there is propaganda everywhere. I think that's a, well, maybe that's a controversial thing to say, but my response of going, there's propaganda everywhere. Just don't pay too much attention to anything and bury your head in the sand. Right. <laughs> that's maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe I should be upset and finding a way to fight for journalistic, uh, yeah, fight for integrity in journalism and push for that and, and fight for integrity in politics and, and from my government. That's going to require me to think really hard about how do I do that. Yeah, it's interesting that you should say all of that because I know that um, there was a book that came out recently. I, I believe the author's name is is Rod Dreher uh, called The Benedict Option. And Yeah, I've heard of it. You have, yeah? Actually, I think I might have read it. Oh, okay, interesting. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, it's a, it's a look at what's going on today and saying, uh, you know, really simplifying this uh, Dreher's argument. He says, um, we should actually just withdraw from the world. It would be better. <laughs> kind of what you're mm, suggesting. Mm-hmm. We need to cloister. Um, this is the best thing for Christians to do in a, in a world that's increasingly post-Christian, which uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be a proponent to that. I feel like I'm just a little bit too missional for that. But I would say that uh, you're absolutely right, that the right response cannot be um, tribalism. So I'd say on a really practical level, this is something that I encourage um, all my students in and anywhere where I speak and we get into this topic is just to say, um, I want to, I want to quote Lewis here and, and tie it with his quote. He said, um, the only people who are really the dupes of their favorite newspapers are the, uh, intelligentsia. It is they who read leading articles. And, and I would say that now because of the advent of internet and, and the social media and social media and whatnot, um, we all have access to information like the intelligentsia would have had in the 40s. Um, so we become dupes when we have a favorite newspaper, is what I want to suggest. Mm. And so there are services like um, newscompare.com is one that I, I recommend to lots of people and others, where you can literally um, look at five articles on the same topic, um, and it will it will show you where they lean, whether they're far right, medium right, centrist, uh, medium left or far left and where they're coming from, how they cover things differently, how they report on things differently. And, uh, and that's something that I think that we, we honestly, if you want to be an informed person, you actually need to do that. It, you cannot get by with independent news sources and you cannot get by with major news outlets. If you just go to the same ones, balanced reading is a job now. Um, I don't know if it always was, I can only speak to my own time and place. And and so if we don't want to be masses that are led around by the nose, again, to quote Lewis there, mm-hmm. um, if we don't want to be swayed by propaganda and then therefore become disillusioned by propaganda, maybe we should say, actually, the right information is out there. Um, we have a, a huge access to it, but I need help sifting it, curating my news sources so that um, the information that I'm getting isn't just sensationalism and it isn't just ideology. Yeah, that's good. I think um, maybe the lesson to pull away from this is to have a healthy skepticism or a hmm. balanced skepticism, you know, because um, Lewis isn't completely, uh, he doesn't lash into, you know, private baits for being uh, comp- uh, not complacent, for being 
I guess he doesn't lash into private baits for not feeling that indignation. I think he points out that probably he should be indignant, but in the, the kind of the way he ends this is showing that there's kind of an upside to the fact that at least at that time, the masses of England, the lower middle class masses, can't be led around by the nose by propaganda from either the government or the media. Because if they could, if the propaganda was working, and again, you know, it, it, I should say it's probably up to a question of how much propaganda it was, but assuming there's propaganda um, and the masses can be led around by it, then you end up with Nazi Germany, right? And so he says, you know, maybe our country won't lead to be led to really glorious, amazing places because they, they just are a little skeptical of what the government says or what the media say. But on the other hand, they're not going to be led to completely wicked, evil places either. And so he says it's not such a terrible thing for for national life because they can't be led astray easily because they have, they have some dose of skepticism. So on the one hand, maybe there's such a thing as being too skeptical of what your government says and what the media say. On the other hand, maybe a dose of skepticism is okay. Maybe there's a middle ground of having some healthy skepticism, you know? So, cause again, if you're so skeptical that you do the you, you, your default is I'm just going to do the opposite of what the government tells me to do. Mm-hmm. We're back to those were the danger of those previous two essays where if the government's pushing too hard and creating all these people who are super skeptical and super against restrictions of freedoms, then when we really do need some restrictions and the government says we need these restrictions, there's going to be all these people who go everything you say is propaganda. And I'm always skeptical of it, and I'm going to push against it by default. Mm-hmm. And then we've got problems as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, agreed. Yeah, that's really good. So, Sean, with all of these things that we've just gone through, um, what do you take away from it? Yeah, other than what you just said about that kind of healthy balance between... And I think that what you're trying to describe is just critical thinking. Um, you know, analyzing something from awareness of, of multiple viewpoints, that's what critical thinking is. And, and I think, um, I think that is challenging always, even if you're well-trained in it and you're used to doing it all the time, but it's also not something that, uh, that we promote well, mostly we, we, yeah, we're good at promoting a critical spirit, but not critical thinking (laughs) or critical feeling Oh yeah, because sometimes your feelings lead your thought life, not sometimes, but most of the time. Yeah. Well said. I think if I go back to, I think it was Lewis's essay, why I'm not a pacifist, where he just shows you how to construct an argument. And, mm-hmm. and one of the points of how to, how to argue and reason well, um, you know, it's critical reasoning and he shows us how to do that. And all of his essays show us how to reason well and critique well, and to not let our critical feelings dominate our argument, but anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Go on. No, I, I think that's great. And, and just kind of to land the plane to say, as I look at these three essays, um, I would say that I really hope and pray and will use what influence is given to me as a citizen of this country, as well as just somebody, um, you know, in my own social network to see that 
unnecessary, extensive, and and um, uh, burdensome public health restrictions do not continue to oppress uh, our country. Ironically, leading to the exact opposite thing as it's probably trying to to prevent. I remember, I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson at the beginning of all this saying, this pandemic will expose to us whether we are willing to trust scientists or not. That was two years ago. I would be really interested to hear hmm. how he feels like it went. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, interestingly, I, and so I would say this, I would, I would say that the question that I came away with from these three is who do I trust then? Hmm. You know, if I feel disillusioned uh, over the way that leadership, political or, or um, scientific has treated me, who do I trust? And at the end of the day, yeah, the, the, the skepticism or, or the critical thinking that you're discussing, Jordan, I, I don't have to bring that in the same way to my relationship with Christ now. I've spent the time and the years that it takes for me to come to the place where I trust the revelation of God through Scripture, um, where I, or I have received the gospel. And, and I did very critically think about all those things and have for years and, and continue to do so. But I can also just rest and trust that he is ultimately an authority that I can follow. Mm. And in, in giving myself over to him, um, and I know that not everybody listening to this podcast is going to be a Christian, so that's fine. You may not, you may not agree with me here, but, but I, I at least have a place where I can take my trust, um, mm-hmm. and, and a, and a plumb line or a measuring stick that I can measure trustworthiness against. Yeah. And, uh, and so that, that's what I come away with at the end of the day. How about you? I mean that I wasn't thinking about that, but that is, that's really good and really encouraging for my heart just to think about, that chapter in Ezekiel where God condemns the leaders of Israel for not being trustworthy and prophesies that there will be a good shepherd who will come. And then Jesus shows up and he is the good shepherd who can lead the people and is trustworthy. And we do know his voice, right? We are his sheep and his sheep know his voice. And we, we can hear it in scripture and um, in the authority of God's people. Um, So that's really encouraging that you bring that up. Thanks for that. I think that's probably a great place to end this episode. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on this text. If you want to join us in making these works of C.S. Lewis more well-known, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a comment and a rating to help get the word out to other listeners. If you have your own thoughts or questions from this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us a message at lesserknownlewis at gmail.com and we'll get back to you. I can't believe how much we just did. Five essays in two hours, baby. (laughs) 